Hello, and welcome to a roundtable discussion on the Comic Book Page podcast. My name is John Mayo. In this episode, I'm joined by guests for a lively conversation on a topic we hope you'll find interesting. In this roundtable discussion, I am joined by my sister Kay, and we are going to have a spoiler-filled conversation around Kingsman The Secret Service. We just finished watching that on Blu-ray. Funny story about this, we were going to go see it when it came out in the theater. We had free tickets and everything, but it was in the winter. Uh, The town froze over, so we opted not to go. It's great living in a town that when you get just a little bit of ice, uh, our city can't cope, really, and we don't ice we don't salt our streets or anything so our town just shuts down in icy weather and both of us learn to drive in san diego it hardly ever rains there much less ices yeah we we prefer not to drive in it anyway in addition to spoiling the movie we're probably going to spoil the secret service comic the miniseries from uh, 2012 and i made you look up when it was from because of some of the visuals in the movie. And sometimes I like to try and guess, based on uh, both plot themes as well as visuals, are these things that were drawn from a certain era from the source material, or were they conscious decisions that the creators made? Which visuals made you wonder? Uh, The tube. Quite literally, the tube. When they went down in the elevator, which I thought was a great Mm -hmm. effect, and then they came out to what looked like it could have been an unused tubed stop in the London area. Uh, but then it looked more like a bank pneumatic tube from about the 60s or before. So I wondered if this was a uh, an older work. Oh, okay. With an older vision or... No, this is reasonably new. But it's funny because I think some of the, most of the inspirations it draws on date back to the 60s. Both the James Bond stuff that it's very much in line with. It had a Get Smart reference. It had a Get Smart reference. But from the comic book realm, uh, this was done by, it was published by Marvel, I believe, through their Icon imprint. Okay. Which is essentially, I don't say the creator-owned stuff, but pretty much. Um, But it also had a few touches drawing to uh, towards the, um, which is ironic given that uh, Samuel L. Jackson played the villain here, uh, drawing towards uh, the uh, Nick Fury. Agent mm. of S.H.I.E.L.D. stuff from the comics. Because in those comics, uh, the spies would walk into a barbershop, old school barbershop, and the seat would lower, you know, way, way, way down, much like this, uh, the Taylor dressing room did. Mm-hmm. And there were one or two other things that reminded me of that. Um, different fitting rooms led to different places. Fitting room three had the hook that led mm-hmm. to the weapons locker. Yeah, I mean, there were a number of classic spy things. You know, the panel revealing all the weapons and mm-hmm. the armory and things of that sort. Um, and I liked the history that they gave the organization that dated back to uh, the First World War mm-hmm. when there were a lot of uh, gentlemen who had lost their sons to the battles in the war. They didn't have heirs, but they had finances that needed a place to go and someone or something to inherit their finances. So they set up this organization and they didn't out and out say that these Knights of the Round Table, for lack of a better term, because that's what they named their spies. Well, and Merlin was their 
Q equivalent or their trainer or whatever. Yeah, but these these spies became kind of the the financial sons, and if not the emotional sons, the um, I want to say the moral heirs. I was going to say the people. wards, essentially, of their mentor. Yeah, but in some respects, they uh, they were the guys who took up the battles that these guys who had lost their sons wanted to fight. Well, what's interesting is when one of them falls, the other guys all essentially nominate a possible replacement. They all go through training, and the survivor, essentially, mm-hmm. is the one who gets inducted, which in and of itself could be a fascinating story. Yes. Because imagine you got somebody trying to take it over, and essentially all you got to do is knock off one of your, your co-workers, plant the seed, and sooner or later you can take over and, and have everybody else in the group be your pick. Yeah. Now you take some shenanigans and stuff, but it'd be fun. The one thing I was thinking of when they were setting up early on the backstory and stuff, which, yeah, it was some exposition, but it made sense and it was good information and mm-hmm. I wanted to know it. But this privately funded... Uh, super spy organization, the Kingsmen. When I was watching that, the first thing that popped into my mind is, you know, what would be the most unlikely country to have a spy organization? I mean, some little tiny little country in the middle of nowhere kind of a thing. It'd be like the the Rhode Island Secret Service or something, you know, it's like, you Tahiti? wouldn't expect that. Hmm? Tahiti? Maybe. Um, Fiji? Antarctica. <laughs> yes, yeah. You know, it, what I liked here is there was... A classic James Bond kind of a vibe to it. A modern twist. It was very much in keeping with the comic book. Yet there were some definite differences. In the comic, at the the end when they've got the whole action sequence and stuff, and Merlin's like, well, we're going to have to do it on our own. If I recall correctly, and it's been a while since I've read the comics. I think I reread them around the time we were going to go see it in the theater. Mm. But that was even still a while ago. Um, I'm pretty sure Eggsy basically turned around and said, it's okay, I know people in low places. And the other guys who'd failed out, uh, they recruit them to get back in, kind of a... Interesting. It's like they were not worth, you know, co-opting. Yeah. And if I recall correctly, Mark Hamill was in the first issue as Mark Hamill. Oh, how funny. And the idea being this rich tech billionaire was not only grabbing the... The, the scientists and the, the, the people he thought were worth saving, but the actors and the people he was fans of. Yeah, there was a pop star in the yeah. movie that went missing and stuff, yeah. So I thought that was, was fun. Um, and of course, you know, Samuel L. Jackson uh, as the bad guy here was terrific, a little over the top in places, mm-hmm. but kind of playing the, the Bond villain where concurrently over in the Marvel stuff, he's playing the James Bond equivalent. Yeah. As Nick Fury. Um, but you look at those, all those films, in, as well as Unbreakable and stuff, it's very, very clear, and he's made no secret about it, that Samuel L. Jackson is a fan of comic books. You know, and this was one of the many things that Mark Millar has written over the years that, I don't say was written to be a movie, mm. but written because he had a story to tell. It was a beginning, middle, and end kind of a finite story. You know, six issues in that case, and that's not uncommon for his work. And if it just so happened to turn out to to become a really good movie, he certainly wasn't going to turn that down. Yeah. Well, it was interesting, the training scenes, or maybe it's more accurate to say the moments that they chose to show from their time at the Kingsman Academy, Mm -hmm. if you will. Because we didn't see hand-to-hand combat classes, I'm thinking we did in the comics... 
But with the comics, I think it's easier to do kind of that montage mm-hmm. thing. Just because it's, well, just draw a panel here if they're fighting and he wins or he loses or whatever. Yeah. Whereas to do that in a movie, you've actually got to have the set. You've got to, you know. it. Yeah. Well, you've got the time to do a five-minute montage that covers months. It would take a couple of weeks, potentially, to go film all of that. Every time you have a location where you want to set up the camera, and really it's every time you want to set up the camera, do a shot, etc., it's 45 minutes to set up the camera, to light the shot, to get everything right. Well, to go. that's for like a TV sort of situation, right? right? I imagine for a movie, it could take a little longer. A little, but not much. The bottom line is there's a very tangible physical cost, mm. even if the location is right there, to set everything up and be able to shoot, whether you're shooting two seconds or two hours. Yeah. Well, when they look at a script, whether it's for a movie or a TV show, they divide the page into eighths of an inch. Mm-hmm. Okay. Eighths of an inch, eighths of a page. Eighths of a page. Sorry. Thank you. I was going to say, um, there's a lot yeah. more eighths of an inch. Yeah, eighths of a page. The top um, half of this line. <laughs> but, you know, we would joke that when you would look at the pages, if it was just dialogue upon dialogue upon dialogue upon dialogue, you know, the grips and the people who set up the shots, the lighting guys and stuff, they're just laughing their heads off going, no problem, 45 mm-hmm. minutes to set up and we walk away. Whereas the poor actors are going... Yeah. There's so much to memorize. There's so much to learn. I need so much prep time. You know, and if somebody says, well, we're just going to switch from doing this one we had planned for tomorrow to today. And the lighting guys are like, well, it's the same 45 minutes to set up for us versus, you know, Mm -hmm. whichever shot. Whereas the actors are saying, you know, that was two eighths of a page versus five pages. Yeah. Do I got to have three lines or do I got to have three soliloquies? Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and what's interesting about that is you were saying, you know, how much work it is for the actors and stuff. There were a couple of places here, uh, particularly the church scenes, the one that stands out. Oh, wow. Where, you know, the the action sequence, there's a lot of time, oh, they choreograph the fight as if it were a dance. Mm. This was like a full, I don't know how long it was, four or five minutes it felt like. I was watching that thing and that was at least a day of filming and i was just blown away by that it was at least a week of rehearsal yeah and there were a couple of times because he's uh he's in the the harry is is in the church the phones go off everybody kind of goes nuts and, and starts fighting and you see him pull out his gun start to do things and then it just keeps going and it had a hyper-realistic, slow-mo-ish kind mm-hmm. of a feel to it, which made it hard to judge how long it was really going on. Mm-hmm. But also, there were a couple of places where it was very much like a, a dance number. Yes. But also some where it's like, okay, at this point, he's gone just out of frame for a second. So if they needed to cut and redo, mm-hmm. that gives them the ability to kind of composite the next part in or something. Yeah. Because there's no way you could do a fight like that in a single take. Yeah. Well, At least I don't think so. I mean, if they've got stunt guys that talented, and they probably do. There's the realization, you know, that the bad guy of the film has purposely chosen a hate church, I think they referred mm-hmm. to it as, in the South. So they, they've piled on assumptions about 
the congregation in a variety of ways. Well, at one point I was asking just how many knives and guns are in this church. Exactly. But you're right. They stacked the deck to where it was more likely to be that way. Yeah. Than if it was a church of, of you know, really sedate little old ladies or something playing bingo or something. Yeah. You know, we were not in a retirement community in uh, Connecticut. Yeah. Um, you know, that kind of thing. I want to know who went for the fire axe. There were a couple of axes. Uh... Yeah, the very fact that the church had a fire axe that was big, yeah. like four feet long, it seemed like. Uh, but... They were dismantling pews at one point. or we're dismantling one point. people. Well, that too. There were a couple of places where this got gross. Yes. That was one of them, the, the fight scene at the beginning. Yes. Now, mm. I will say at the very end, they went more 4th of July than gross. Yes. They got to the point where it was literally just kind of over the top, uh, almost cartoony. Yeah. And even still, there were a few places it was a little gross, but it was very much um, not glorifying the violence, but certainly not sidestepping it and implying nobody's getting hurt. I mean, they're getting eviscerated. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it was funny because that really turned me off, yet I was also, you know, trying to, to appreciate the choreography, the the planning that went into some of this. Yes. And there were some aspects of the stunt work and the fight sequences that was just beautifully done. Well, it took me a while as we were watching the film to understand how, and I admit, you know, he's a psychotic bad guy. So trying to understand the psychotic bad guy is probably not my best decision. It's better than if you do understand the psychotic bad guy. Then I start to worry. Yeah, but I'm trying to get, okay, where is this guy coming from? Because at the beginning of the movie, he is all about solving climate change and trying to make the world a better place. And now we're moving on to creating an app that uh, defeats people's inhibitions and triggers their most violent tendencies. Mm -hmm. And yet they tied it all together. The, the, the bad guy's plot... His, his plan made sense. Yeah. They had a couple of flashbacks where he's telling bits and pieces to people. Uh-huh. So it's not like it's telegraphed. It's not like it's what's going on. Yet you also never get the James Bond villain monologue. Yeah. In fact, they flat tell you this is not that kind of movie. Twice, at least. Yes. Um, but it was very much playing up the, the tropes of those movies. Yeah. You know, and very uh, self-reflexive about those tropes. You know, at one point, uh, they're having a, a meal, uh, Colin um, Firth, Firth uh, and Samuel Jackson, their characters, and each one saying that they had kind of imagined as a kid growing up to be the bad guy or the good guy, the other one, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, so they're, they're giving us all the tropes, even if you're not familiar with them. Well, and they're uh, expecting it to be this huge uh, black tie gala that might as well be the steak and the lobster fair. And the guy says, well, you know, if you're going to donate such a huge amount of money just to come to my function, I cancel the gala and have a dinner just for us. For that much, it's a, worth a private dinner. Yeah. And when they bring out the uh, the silver platter food, it's Big Macs and cheeseburgers from McDonald's. I'll be honest, I was expecting it to reveal the head of the guy he'd just killed or something. I have expected that too, to be honest. There are certain parts, though, that, and again, that I'm pretty sure they did the the McDonald's thing or whatever in the comic. Some of the stuff, though, plays so much better on the movie screen mm. because you've got the delivery. Mm-hmm. 
you've got the the dramatic pauses, the timing, the 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 presentation of the material mm-hmm. that you know. And one of the the end lines was, you know, thank you for a happy meal. Yes. And you read that on a comic book page, haha, I get it. Whereas you can have a little undertext and, and subcurrent to that. Yeah. Uh, on the screen. Well, especially when, you know, Colin Firth went there with the intention of being a character that was worthy of being kidnapped. But also being lost in the crowd. Yes. Yeah. So having the undivided attention and a Big Mac. Yes. Yeah. You know, there's a juxtaposition there that's yeah a little wacky. Now, when I saw the trailers for this and got very interested based on the commercials, uh, they really played up the uh, the secret room with the stash of the weapons yeah. and the gadgetry and the stuff like that. The James Bondish aspects. Yeah, and that was in here. Don't oh, get absolutely. Me wrong. But very early on during the training, my pet peeve became uh, to the point that I finally called out to you the. I hate these training plaid jumper uniform things. I think it was making fun of the British upper crust society. I guess. And how antiquated and out of touch they are. Okay. It, yeah. There were numerous mentions of kind of the, the silver spoon. Yes. Aristocrats. And how Eggsy was not one of them. Well, and it was interesting that all the others were... Silver Spoon legacies, but Eggsy was a Kingsman legacy. Yeah, but his father had died and he was out of that, you know. In other words, he wasn't brought up that way. He was not brought up as one of the Kingsmen, but my point is we don't know that any of the others were either. True, true. We don't know. All we know is that they came from wealthy backgrounds. Mm -hmm. We don't know how they met the person who chose them for this. Fair point. I think there's an aspect of just... How to recruit for a super spy organization that could be some fun stories. Yes. And I could also see almost a reversal of this where you've got an almost blue collar agency and then somebody from the the, the, the wealthy side of the tracks tries to get in. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought one of the really good scenes during the training was uh, when Merlin told Eggsy, you know, if you have something to say, you come close and you mm. whisper it in my ear. And it's, you know, you need to knock that chip off your back. And he pulls the parachute cord. Because this was after they'd done a skydiving exercise. And as they're falling, uh, Merlin's like, yeah, one of you doesn't have a parachute. Yeah. And Eggsy was exhibiting the leadership. It's like, okay, everybody buddy up. That way, one of the two of you will have the chute. Yeah. And he gets down to the ground never having opened his because everybody else had opened. So by elimination, he figured he didn't have one. Yeah. So when he's basically yelling at Merlin of, oh, I was the expendable one. Yeah. And Merlin pulls the chute. It's like, no, I was lying the whole time kind of thing. Yeah. And it it established an aspect of their relationship because I think at that point, Eggsy kind of immediately saw almost the humor and the mind game part of it and it's like okay you're testing us this is dangerous we could die but you're not actually out to kill us yeah well and merlin says later you know this will be the first time there's actually been no safety net Mm -hmm. yeah i like the merlin character 
I thought the Merlin character was very good. Yeah. He was the drill sergeant, the kind of man at arms for the Kingsman, sort of the the weapons uh, guy, but not quite. Mm-hmm. Um, he seemed to be the 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 Alfred of the group, if you will. Yeah. The scene that I didn't care for was uh, the shoot your dog scene. I was watching that because at this point, the two remaining people, they've been part of the training is well, you got to train the dog and from puppyhood from puppyhood up. And it's basically other people are going to be relying on you. You need to be able to care for other people. You need to care for the dog. You need to train the dog. The dog is dependent on you. It was a lesson in responsibility, yeah, teamwork, and thinking beyond yourself. Yeah. So it was a, a very interesting kind of a an aspect of the thing. But when it's aka, you know, here's a gun, shoot the dog. Mm-hmm. I'm sitting here thinking, you know, this is a mind game, probably. Yeah. If you shoot the dog, they can come back with, oh, you just followed, you know, you didn't ask, you didn't push back, you didn't do anything, you just did what you were told. You're a mindless drone. You're out. Yeah. You know, or if you don't shoot the dog. You're not following orders. You're out. I mean, it's 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 one of those almost no winnable situations. It depending felt like how they a lose lose situation, and the dog is a hundred percent dependent on you, and the dog never betrayed you. Yes, but there's also shoot the dog, not kill the dog. Yes. So I think there was a possibility of you know grazing the dog, but then it's a well, you're a lousy shot. You yeah. know, kind of a yeah. So that was one where it comes down to, have you figured out the rules of the game you're playing? Yeah. Um, I didn't care for that, but I wasn't horribly surprised uh, by the way it went down. I'm pretty sure that was an aspect from the comic. And man, the shots they had of the dog. It's this little pug, and yeah. he's just kind of looking up at you, literally with puppy dog eyes. Yeah, yeah. The and I've done nothing to you, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so far... And such an opposite extreme from his father would die to protect his partner. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why the scene rubbed me the wrong way. Yeah. Are you hiring? Are, are you training spies or are you training assassins? Yeah. That felt like you're training assassins. Yeah. And if you're sending people out, more, it was also unclear. Are these solo spies or team spies? Yeah. Because a lot of times we'd seen more the solo sort of a thing. Well, and the... For me, the reason that was unclear was a necessity of the story, and that's when Eggsy comes back through the bank tube thing, and he comes charging at Merlin, and Lancelot pulls the gun, and he's like, no, no, I've got the phone, I can prove to you Arthur died, because I let him drink the poison, because he's betraying you. And Merlin says, well, it's up to the three of us, because we don't know who we can trust, because mm -hmm. I thought I could trust Arthur. So now it's, we don't know if we can trust the other Kingsmen. Well, and again, in the comics, this is where they pull in the, the recruits or whatever. Yeah. And it made sense for them not to do that here. You know, there's an aspect of six 20 or so page comics and a roughly two hour movie. Yeah. You know, there's, you've got, in some cases, more space in each medium than you do in the other. Yeah. It's just a different kind of space. Yeah. Whereas here, if you brought the the other recruits in you've got a little bit more of a logistical thing oh we've got to keep track of all these characters mm -hmm. whereas that's not as much of an issue in the comics yeah um which is it, it's fun seeing how something gets adapted because this is not the first nor will it be the last of uh, mark miller's uh, stories 
to get adapted. One of the other things I've got in our stack of, of movies to watch is Wanted, which was Angelina Jolie and uh, the guy who's uh, the younger uh, Xavier. McAvoy? Uh, James McAvoy, thank you. I really am bad on remembering the names. Is that the one where they uh, bend bullets? Yes. Because I was thinking during this one that they had some slow-mo and just shooting uh, bullets. Like, he would do a backflip and then suddenly shoot somebody. And When they're in the mm. uh, the mountain yeah. you know, hideaway, the bunker, and he's running through this maze or whatever almost to get out and continually hitting another two or three guards. Mm-hmm. He's flipping over, using the shields, shooting, you know, and... Mm-hmm. Very slow-mo, watch-the-bullet kind of a thing. Yeah. And now some of that is aided by uh, Merlin being on the other end of the video from the glasses mm-hmm. and patched into security feed and telling him, you're coming up on two guards and yeah. stuff like that, which made it more believable. But Wanted, well, it had some of the same kind of gunplay and a few things that evolved into a much more sophisticated version here years later. That was one where the movie had the plot the tone, many of the characters, but there were certain aspects that were completely stripped out of the movie from the comic, Mm. simply because they were very comic book-esque, and that audience would get them, whereas they wouldn't hear. Whereas this property, while it was originating as a comic book, most of its its touchstone aspects, James Bond, spy movies- The final scene, or the final 10, 20 seconds- uh, not counting what was thrown into the credits, uh, where he goes with the champagne bottle and the two glasses mm. and runs off from there on. It felt like it was right out of a James Bond movie. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And then the tag scene at the end where he goes back to, to meet oh, that, his mom again. That, that was, was beautiful. The, that was a callback to when Harry was originally kind of set up, oh, that's who he is kind of. Thing. Yeah. And it also ended the arc for Eggsy of this punk kid to this gentleman. Yeah. And one of the things with Mark Millar's writing is he usually has a very clear idea. This is the arc of the story. Yeah. Sometimes it's a character arc. Sometimes it's a plot arc. Yeah. Many times it's both. They did some really nice stuff in this with, you know, what makes a gentleman? Mm -hmm. What makes a person? I loved that Eggsy didn't know Pretty Woman and several of the other movies, but he knew Pygmalion. Mm Mm-hmm. At the end, the movie was dedicated to, um, I guess, Mark Miller's mother. I think so. Somebody's mother. Presumably yeah. Mark's. And I I really think, you know, whoever this is, their mother taught them Pygmalion and taught them a love of literature Some and stuff like that. Some of the classics, like yeah. You know, and that's one of the great things our parents do for us. Well, but where that really paid off here is you've got a writer who is in the comic book format doing something that at the time, back in like 2008 or whenever Wanted came out, 2012 when this came out, it's now kind of more commonplace. But the short arc, mm. the beginning, middle, and end in six issues, whereas now it's about as long as some t- ongoing titles seem to last. But while there's going to be more of Secret Service, more of Kingsman in the movies, Secret Service in the comics, I mean, they've got a, a sequel coming out around June of 2017. Which will put it... As presumably a month before a San Diego Comic-Con. Yeah. Interesting. But it's there's more you can tell in this universe, but this story ended here. Yes. There was no sense of a cliffhanger. Oh, gosh, I wonder what happens. I'd like to see more with the characters, mm-hmm. but I didn't have any unanswered questions. There was, again, a, a completeness, a narrative completeness to the story. 
Yeah. That Markle Millar, I think, is very good at. With, and, they implied without directly stating Eggsy is now uh, Galahad. Mm-hmm. We know Roxy is now uh, Lancelot. Lancelot. Although her having Roxy on her astronaut suit annoyed me. They were a little uh, back and forth as to what names they go by. Yeah. And I think that happened in the writing because uh, Harry introduced himself as Harry to Eggsy. Mm. And that kind of threw the person who was writing it. Yeah. I, I think it's a matter of... Merlin was always Merlin. Arthur was always Arthur until we got to the underground bunker. Yeah. But because Roxy was Roxy until she earned Lancelot, but she had been Roxy. And so the writer had that character in their head as Roxy. Well, and she was so new to Lancelot, they didn't really have had the time to True. do all the monogramming or what have you. True. It, it comes down to, is Lancelot the title or the name or the position? Seemed to be the name, because like in that scene from the 17 years earlier. Yeah, they, they were referring to each other as. Yeah. Using the, the Knights of the Round Table is a little interesting thing. Mm-hmm. Because to have essentially all or equal... Yet you're using the name of, of one of the noble knights, one of the ones that betrayed them, mm-hmm. the king who's much more equal than the others. Mm-hmm. There's no Guinevere, you know. Arthur sat at the head of the table because we didn't have a round table. Yeah. I did love the uh, the glasses that seemed to kind of activate holograms uh, at the table, for instance, so other members could kind of magically appear from remote locations. For me, it begged the question of why was only one of them there in person. He's the one based in London. That was my take. They never established in my mind that the others were based elsewhere. They mentioned later that the girl who pretended drowned was now a tech person in the office in, I think it was Belgium. Fair enough, fair enough. So we were left to assume quite a few things, but you can only fit so much into our movie. And again, I don't need the full history and inner workings of the whole organization in the first film. Mm Mm-hmm. Again, it's something that they set up a good enough premise that doing more films, more stories, comics, etc. makes sense. Mm-hmm. It was a very satisfying read initially. Very uh, good film. Again, personally, I had some issues with the the level of gore in some of the scenes. The one time I thought the uh, effects could have been better, as in noticeably, I actually asked you, shouldn't they be walking down Straight Hall, was in the prison cavern. They're in the prison. We've established the princess is there. Samuel Jackson is walking down the hall, a st- clearly straight hall. Yet between the doors and stuff, the wall has this bizarre arcing, as if it's like a barrel distortion fisheye lens sort of a thing. Like maybe he's walking more around a circular barrel hall instead yeah. of a straight hall, almost to the point of being nauseating. Yeah, but that was the one place in the film. Where I just kind of got pulled out with the, wait, could you have gone back and redone the effects for me? But that, that was that good. That one was, was distracting. There were many places where it was obvious an effect was being used. The slow-mo and the fights, a yes. few things like that. Uh, but there were also a couple where it's like, you know, this is almost certainly green screened. Not that it was badly green screened. It was mm. very well done. But like when they're going down in the, the room yes. initially, um, there were a lot of times I could easily imagine... These guys went into the studio that day. They stood in front of a green screen. They did their lines. Stuff came in afterwards, and they watched the movie. Oh, that's what the room looked like. (laughs) Yeah. One of the things I liked was we get enough of the James Bond kind of tech with, like, the umbrella and stuff. Mm. 
but we also get enough of the James Bond humor at times, old yeah. school Bond, because when Eggsy is using it in the bunker and the guy basically comes with, like, I guess, a shotgun or something and is blasting through it and he's looking through it, it's like, oh, this isn't working as well as I thought it would. Yes, yes. I loved when Merlin told him to go blend in in this room full of, you know, the elite who are mm -hmm. going to survive in the bunker. The chosen. Yes, and he goes to order a drink and he has, you know, everybody knows how Bond orders his drink. What that did for me was when he was first getting the lessons and being a gentleman and lesson two was the martini. We never see that lesson. True. This was that lesson. Yes. Yes. He learned. Yes. And that's what I love about the writing is there's certain things you can skip over because you fill in the blanks later. I loved that we had seen Harry in that home office with those uh, tabloid pages on the wall several times and then when he explained them mm -hmm. i really enjoyed that this is what made the headlines because i saved the world and there was another newspaper able to be printed yeah and yep got no credit and it's like literally dozens and dozens and dozens uh, lining the the room mm -hmm. what i did find interesting there was there was no room left for new ones Yes. So he knew he was dying. Okay. <laughs> well, I liked his attitude that a gentleman should only be in the paper three times. When you're born, when you're married, when you die. Yeah. You know, you're not doing it for the glory. You're doing it because it needs to be done saving the world. Yeah. And that I think might have, I don't know if that was necessarily a hard lesson for Eggsy or not. Um, he, he never seemed to be the glory hound. No, I think he was afraid he'd already disappointed Harry because he'd gotten into trouble in the past. And he was afraid that that might have gotten into yeah. the news. In the comics, Harry was more of, he might have actually been his uncle. Mm. But there was a, a, a stronger connection there than just, hey, his father happened to, to save Harry's life. Okay. I forget exactly what that was, but it uh, it it worked well on the screen and probably better that way on a film because it, I think in a movie that would have felt a little forced. Mm, mm -hmm. Oh, how convenient. Yeah. You know, sort of a thing. Yeah. Whereas when I was reading it in the comic, I didn't feel that way. It's funny because there are certain story points and contrivances that in a comic will just jump out at me and maybe in a TV show or film, it's like I wouldn't even notice and vice versa. Mm -hmm. You know, um, and part of it is the different storytelling style in a comic book, it's easy to flip back a couple of pages and double check something. Yeah. Whereas in the movie, it's like, I, I've had this problem in some shows, TV shows in particular, where early on they introduced two guys, roughly the same age, roughly the same build, both dark hair. Mm -hmm. And it's like, once you get to know the cast, oh, that's Dean Kane. This is the other guy, Max Landis or whatever, playing uh, Jimmy Olsen. Mm -hmm. They look nothing alike. The first time you're going through and still trying to figure out, wait, who's who? Yeah. You know, it's easy to get confused. Um, and that's part of why I liked here. There were really no characters that looked enough alike that you would mistake them for one another. Yeah. That's, again, subtle uh, uh, writing aspects of accessibility. Yeah. You know, you've got a white guy. Harry is the hero. Black guy is the villain. You're not going to, whoops, which is which again? You mm -hmm. know? So, again, it, it, it had... A level of craft that I think on one level is completely invisible until you actually stop and kind of dig and, and think about some of these things. Mm -hmm. You know, and again, they'd made a few other 
flips uh, and changes between the comic and the movie. Gazelle, I'm pretty sure, was an older white guy in the comic. And it was the the young girl mm. here with the, the jumper feet yeah. or whatever. And they had a couple of lines at one point explaining why Gazelle was Gazelle or how he hated being called that or whatever. None of which made it to the movie. None of which needed to make it to the yeah. movie. Um, it was just there for, you know, the visual aspect. Overall, I really enjoyed the film. Uh, it's one of those that while I'm watching it, I know enough about the basic plot that it's not like I'm surprised how it ends. Yeah. What was the rating? On the film? Yeah. That's an excellent question. And you're going to wish you had your glasses on. Rated R. Rated R. Yeah, I'm not surprised. Yeah. Well, the more I was thinking about all that violence, the more I was thinking it probably was. I'm trying to remember the uh, level of language. There were a few places I think we got a little profanity, maybe, but... The language wasn't It was fairly tame. Yeah. Which, again, I respect. I don't think you need to use harsh language or whatever, but when you mention the R rating, that's another one that, you know... Because I've seen a few other films where it's like, man, you know, profanity, left, right, and center, it's not really adding anything. And for a film about being a gentleman. Yes. Granted, one that's a capable assassin slash spy, whatever, it's still, mm-hmm. you know, it that's something that I think in the hands of a lesser writer, we would have started out with a very foul-mouthed Eggsy. Yeah. Who became the polished, civilized one at the end. When we already knew that Eggsy had a good heart. I mean, we saw it from the way he was uh, affectionate to his little sister before he left the apartment yeah. to go hang with his friends and stuff. But watching him watch Harry in the church was really powerful. Well, watching Eggsy watch and then uh, Merlin and also Arthur. Yeah. And for that matter. Valentine um, the bad guy. Valentine the bad guy. Yeah. Well, and Gazelle for that matter. I mean. Yeah. Very five different vantage points and perspectives on this. Yeah. Um, without any, it, none of them are telling us how to feel about it, but across all of those, there's many uh, points of identification. Yeah. Valentine almost being grossed out by it. Yep, I can relate to that. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, uh, Eggsy being almost a little kind of outraged by this or whatever. Outraged and feeling powerless. Yeah. But that's also what gets him kind of back into the Kingsman. Yeah. You know, it was a, a definite motivating force. Uh, and I thought the choice of voiceovers of what he was hearing from Harry afterwards, mm. you know, what stuck with him mm-hmm. was well done. Yeah. So I'm I'm very much looking forward to a sequel on this. I am too. Um, I will say I will wait for the DVD or the Blu-ray. Yeah, me this too. This is one that, frankly, I'm glad I didn't go see in the theater. Yeah. I didn't expect that much gore. When somebody's literally getting hacked in half at the beginning, it's like, I don't need that. No. So that that was something that if they could change one thing, and there are some people, oh, that would totally change the film or whatever. Yes and no. The film isn't about the violence, and you can imply the violence. You could have had all the, the, the foot soldier guys in the, the bunker getting shot and dying without lopping their heads off and, and, and being quite as graphic. It could have mm-hmm. been almost 18-level violence without diminishing the story. Because guess what? They do that a lot in the James Bond films. Yeah. Uh, maybe not the newer ones. I'm a good couple of films behind on that. And gee, I wonder why. Yeah. <laughs> so, but yeah, I'm looking forward to a, a sequel on this. Like I said, we'll uh, we'll catch it on Blu-ray. That'll be at least another year or so from now as we record this. Um, but this is one of at least four or five properties, I believe, Mark Millar's had translated to film. I know he's got a few others, Chrononauts and stuff in the work. 
uh, that I'm very much looking forward to. Uh, some of his his miniseries work better for me than some others, um, based on just what genre he's playing around with or what sort of a take he's got on it. Mm-hmm. But they're all well written. The guy knows his craft, and the fact that uh, Hollywood's kind of come a calling, and he's d- turned his stuff into good films and continued to do good comics to me is very much in his his favor. Um, there are others that would have just said, you know what, I've gotten my foot in the door in Hollywood, so long to comics. Yeah. And I respect the fact that he hasn't done that. No, that's very cool. But it's also, from just a, a pragmatic point of view, a good way to do kind of your research and development of properties and such, see what's working, see what's not. It gives you something that communicates your story across to the plethora of people involved in a movie. This film had, what, a five-minute credits? It did, yeah. So there are a lot of people involved. So having a trade paperback you can hand to everyone involved if they need it, or mm-hmm. they can go buy if they want, this is the basic story we're telling. Yeah, this is our vision. You know, that to me is, uh, I think, just a genius move. Yeah, I agree. So anything else? Does that pretty much do it? I think that does it. Cool. The show notes and forum for this podcast can be found at www.comicbookpage.com under the podcast and forum sections of the website. Please email us at theguys at comicbookpage.com and let us know what you think of what was discussed in this episode. Thanks for listening.